Hello everybody, welcome to the Juan Galt Show. Today we have another couple of fantastic guests. David Puel, investment analyst at ARK, and Adam Dubb, who is also an investment analyst and a trader, and he has a pretty big YouTube channel, Ichi Fibonacci. So definitely check that out. Both of these guys are brilliant, and uh, they're very well versed in the economic situation in Argentina, in particular, the anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, presidential candidate who's actually, like, winning right now, Javier Milei. And uh, this has been a fascinating story. I've gone down the rabbit hole. I've tumbled down the rabbit hole, really, over the past few weeks. And uh, I'm finding this story very, very interesting. I'm going to be keeping an eye on it. And um, anyway, we had David Puel and Adam Dubb on the show, as well as a few other uh, friends of mine to comment on the situation, including a regular guest of the show, Mr. Body Anarchist, who, like myself, is a bit of an insider into uh, anarcho-capitalist, let's say, subculture. And so, very interesting conversation. We looked at the good, the bad, and the ugly of Javier Millet, and I hope that uh, we did a good job. Let us know what you think. Let us know how you feel about Mr. Millet. Um, he seems to me like a very interesting character. I like his policies and uh, in general. And there's a few things that I'm concerned about, which we'll all get into during this conversation. So yeah, let us know what you think. And uh, also, there's two big conferences coming up. First of all, Adopting Bitcoin in El Salvador is going to be coming up in November. You're going to definitely want to check it out. Look up Adopting Bitcoin 2023. I'll put the link in the show notes. This is the biggest Bitcoin conference in El Salvador. It's a builder's conference. You'll find VCs, startups, entrepreneurs, developers, and people just looking to build and build in a country where the government's not getting in your way and when you got, where you got to compete with the strongest currency in the world, the dollar. So it's a fantastic environment to build Bitcoin companies and build Bitcoin technology that can probably be exported to other countries as things move forward. So if you're a builder, if you're ready to hit the ground running and help us build the next generation of Bitcoin technology, you're going to want to go to this conference at El Salvador. This is Adopting Bitcoin. And we have a discount code for you. 10% off if you use the code Bitcoin News, one word, Bitcoin News. Um, you get 10% off. So definitely check that out. We also have Unconfiscatable coming up this December. You've heard me talk about it. I think it's a great conference. There's steak, there's gaming, there's arcade, there's poker, there's great speakers, fantastic lineup of speakers, actually. Let me just go over a few of them, uh, just so you get a sense of it. Giacomo Suco, Tom Vase, Jimmy Song, Adam Back, Jack Mahlers, Mark Moss, Greg Foss, uh, D++, interesting character, uh, Mike Moss, BTC Sessions, MVK. This is a maximalist, star-studded lineup. You're not going to want to miss it. It's in December. It's in Vegas. It's going to be great time. There's also... Um, and uh, Anyway, I'm going to be there as well. So if you can make it, I got a discount code for you. GALT10. G-A-L-T-1-0, GALT10. And you get 10% off. I hope to see you there. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation about Javier Millet. So without further ado, Adam Dubb and David Puel. 
boy do we have a lot of a lot of content a lot of questions and topics to cover today i've been going down a deep deep rabbit hole into Millet uh the past few days and uh i have to say i like a lot of his policies and his politics very much aligned with the way that i see um the world in a way but also there's a couple of things that concern me about his history and i've tweeted them out that uh, is a kind of a vulnerability of anarcho-capitalists, which is that they don't, they seem to be kind of blind to private enterprise fraud and crypto scams. And uh, Millet certainly has a bit of a sketchy re track record on that front. However, from a policy perspective, uh, he's kind of a dream candidate so far. I'm not Argentinian, so this is a question for them to to answer, but it's it's very interesting. Um, and I'm I'm also kind of curious who's backing the guy because he's clearly... You know, somebody's got to be behind them. What's up, Adam? Awesome. Um, hey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I see that you have you have a pretty big presence on on uh, on YouTube. You have a lot of content. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Are you from Argentina? And um, yeah, what are you up to over there? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in the capital. Uh, actually, I was born in the middle of a hyperinflation in 1989. So. Jeez. I, but I grew up, you know, I grew up in an unusual uh, era for Argentina because there was no inflation for the first 10 years I was alive in this world. I felt I felt scammed later because of what, of what came later. So um, I think in 2001, when was there 9-11 attacks, uh, that marked me and made me gain interest or, or take interest in, in international politics, current events and that kind of stuff. But I always had like a contrarian, more of a contrarian view. Of, I was more in the line of what uh, General Patton said that if everyone's thinking the same, there is probably not, probably there's no one thinking. So much more in, in those terms. I, 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 had, I had an intuitive contrarian view on everything about current events. And it was in... 2005, 2006, when I was around 17 years old, that I found some books in my grandfather's library about Austrian economics. The first book I found was The Constitution of Liberty by Hayek. And when I started reading that book, I started feeling that all my intuitive views about the world matched or or or, or that book provided the framework and and kind of structured all my my ideas. So uh, after that, reading that book, I started reading a lot of other books that my father, my grandfather had in his library, but he never read them. He got them because he worked at a place where they print those books, but they were just there at the library, but never touched by him. So that's how I became a libertarian. And by 2009, I was taking part with... Uh, other people who later they became Bitcoiners uh, like me, and that's where I knew Bitcoin. It was a local libertarian party that was uh, formed in the middle of uh, a very socialist government that was in its peak of popularity. So it took us four years in order to get ballot access. And we got ballot access. We we only got 6,000 votes, but it was a really uh, very graceful experience because uh, we, we, we started to clean the name of libertarianism in a way 
because here we can talk about this later. It was almost an insult talking about liberalism or libertarianism. So we got some some media exposure, and we 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 weren't aiming to to get to take to get a, a seat at the legislature, but to to put out there the ideas and spread the ideas and make more people aware of of the existence of these uh, ideas of, of of on liberty and 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 freedom. So that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and and it, it seems like it seems like the culture, like the the libertarian political, let's say, um, ethos and mentality, has actually really spread culturally, not just in Argentina but other countries. And obviously, Malay is uh, very much positioned as a libertarian candidate. He has a very long track record as an anarcho-capitalist, which is you know probably as far as you can go on libertarianism. Um, which is very, very interesting. Um, so, you know, clearly you guys have had a positive effect on that regard. Um, we don't have a lot of time. We're going to have um, David Puel join us in about 15 minutes, and then he'll stay for about 45. Uh, hopefully you can stay as long as you, uh, you know, as long as possible, and we can really get a sense of what the, what's going on in Argentina. So maybe tell us a little bit about the 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 sentiment that you're seeing in Argentina, do you think Millet can actually win this? Is there any real opposition or is this kind of pretty much in the bag uh, unless he really messes it up? Well, what what happened uh, two, just two weeks ago, it was there was a, a pre-vote. It was like a primary where everyone is, uh, is mandated to vote, but it only works in, if there is some internal competition among candidates within a party. If you if we come all these uh, uh, the, the independent candidate what, what each candidate got in the election, Millet got thirty percent of the vote. This is about seven million people voting for him, and the next candidate got twenty one percent of the vote as an independent candidate. Uh, the third, which is the, the government, the, the the second candidate is the one that uh, runs for the government party, which is the the, the ruling party right now, the Peronismo. And the third, the third candidate was the favorite, which was the more center-right wing traditional opposition. I think uh, over the last years, the Millet has achieved to make a cultural shift and move the the Overton window. So he had uh, made acceptable policies that maybe ten years ago were unthinkable. For example, reducing taxes, privatization of companies, um, you know, dollaris even dollarization, and all kind of radical, in some way, measures uh, were unthinkable uh, before Millet started to get media attention back in 2017, 2018. So I think there is a real chance of Millet becoming president and being elected next election, so he needs to get at least 40% of the vote and a 10% difference with the next one behind him, or over 45% of the vote to first to win in, in this election. Otherwise, they go to a second round with the, with the second one. But I, I think after his victory, a lot more people were thinking that uh, of voting Millet because they, they thought before that they were wasting their vote when when they were voting for a candidate that was polling at third place with 20%. So he beat all the expectations and the, the, the state gaze in the country has changed. And even 
the people in the the, the poor people who uh, usually get benefited like in the sh in short term benefits of welfare checks and uh, you know subsidies and all all this kind of welfare state uh, network. Um, they started realizing that the, these these kind of programs they, they 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 keep them from improving and progressing on their lives in the long term. So a lot of of people has now saying the state doesn't work. It has promised me to the right to healthcare, right to education, right to a home, right to a happy holiday a holiday trip, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but I'm I'm getting nothing. So. If I'm not, if I'm getting nothing from the state, at least leave me alone. That's what the I would say the median voter is thinking right now about Millet. It's not that everyone is embracing all the libertarian ideas and suddenly uh, seven million people here are hardcore Rosvardians and anarcho-capitalists, but there is a, a cultural shift and a shift in the way people think about their relation with government and their relation with their own job. Right, and and certainly the the biggest pain point for Argentinians seems to be the the inflation, which has been over a hundred percent this year, uh, projected to be one hundred and forty percent next year. Um, this has to be devastating to Argentinians. Um, and the the biggest, let's say, the most controversial policy of of his, even though he's got a lot of really interesting policies on other fronts, is the idea of dollarizing the country. Um, what is what is your take on this, and what is the sentiment on this issue uh, in Argentina? And do you know anything about the process by which he would do that? Like, is it, you know, what path would he take to do that? So yes, as you say, right now inflation is number one topic of concern for Argentines, and not only inflation, but all the thing that brings inflation, like increased poverty. Now even people with a job are poor, are behind, the, are, are below the poverty line. So that's the number one issue right now here, and I think this has been one of the of the main reasons that white people are choosing him, because they want a, an immediate solution for the inflationary problem, which is uh, becoming more and more unbearable. It's been a 20-year process now of inflation of inflation in 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 Argentina with a over the, the one peso was one dollar back in two thousand and two, and one one now one dollar is almost eight hundred pesos. So you can imagine the, the the inflation we had over this period. And his dollarization process is the it's it's not unanimous support. There is controversy, but I would say it's a, the measure that is that that that. that Gains more support among among the the, the people who who votes here in Argentina, uh, but one of the the main problems of dollarization is uh, that Argentina and the Argentine government particularly doesn't have any U.S. dollars in order to exchange the Argentine peso for U.S. dollars because you need to switch currencies. So the process of dollarization, which I'm not very into it, but I can explain it in the big picture, involves using part of the of bonds that the central bank is holding and using as a special a financial special vehicle in order to get the US dollars and 
proceed with the realization. But it's a it's a more complex uh, uh, implementation. And even Millet said that he is uh, uh, between four or five different proposals. This one that I mentioned is the one that has more chances of getting implemented because it's the faster one. But um, yeah, it's not it's not easy to explain. Yes, of course, they would need a, a significant amount of paper dollars, and then they would need to somehow provide the liquidity or find the liquidity through the banking system. So yeah, perhaps through a, a path through the bond, some sort of special vehicle there. Um, this makes me wonder, so like, do we know, maybe do you, you have any insight on how is he funding his campaign? Is he self-funded? Is he being backed by the U.S.? Is like, how is you know, does he have the right connections in the U.S. to dollarize the country, which would obviously benefit the U.S.? It would, it would tie them to American foreign policy significantly, which is obviously another important controversy, given that Argentina was just uh, accepted into the BRICS alliance. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and Javier Milei is an outspoken anti-communist that has said that he will not, that as a president, that he will not, enter into agreements with communists. So like geopolitically speaking, he he probably needs the backing of the of of, of the US to do this. Do do we know how he's funding his campaign or what connections he has in that in that regard? So he's carrying a really low budget campaign. So he has very strong grassroots grassroots movement. So I don't know. You may be familiar familiar with the Ron Paul's campaign back in 2008, and you can imagine something similar because there is very a lot of grassroots movement, a lot of online activism. But in itself, the campaign is not requiring a lot of money. Um, he's not buying his ads in on on social media or any anything like that. So in that sense, he he has not uh, used a lot of money. Uh, on his campaign. I know, I'm aware that there are some international donors that uh, might help Millet's campa campaign, but that doesn't mean that they will contribute to the dollarization process or they will put money forward to, to make dollarization happen. Uh, we're speaking strictly in, in terms of, of his campaign. But he his team is, is comprised by people who has uh, really solid experience in international banking and international finance. So they have the contacts if needed in order to, or the connections to, in order to, to get access to funds and potential investors. Um, so in that sense, I think that, that, that area is kind of covered because, and I don't know if you, if you ask me anything else about dollarization that I'm missing out oh, about his geopolitical alignment, yeah. Uh, so yes, the BRICS, um, the BRICS um, act, Argentina's access to BRICS uh, was made, I think, last week or two weeks ago. I'm not sure right now, but I think it needs to be confirmed after January the first. Like they, they after January the first, Argentina is authorized or allowed by BRICS to get into the group. And by January the first, there will be a new president, probably Milei. So I don't think he will complete. He will end up executing that uh, um, access to this to this group. 
but uh, and, and internationally he has he has um he has said that he's really aligned with the US and Israel uh, foreign policy so in that sense um he, he, he's not looking forward to 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 challenge the the, the US uh hegemony right exactly so he should you know if the west was wise they would be backing Millet in this in this campaign um unfortunately the media has of course uh covered him as a right wing extremist which is hilarious because there's multiple pictures of him you know wearing uh you know uh the kippah uh, you know the the jewish um ritual hat right sorry for not getting the name right but anyway he's definitely a jewish uh, admirer he's he's uh i believe he's catholic right and he's a libertarian small government libertarian so they, they try to paint him as a right winger which suggests that the media for some reason you know or their handlers don't necessarily like Millet. you know they would be post positioning him as a as a liberator against uh you know some other forces but of course the imf you know it it's it's very complex politics, and I and I wonder because one of the issues that he has, one of the things that he said is that he's not he he, ha, he has proposed a plan to uh, pay the debt, right, the national debt. Uh, he doesn't intend on defaulting on the debt. His policy seems to be to deregulate and liberalize uh, the country to um, you know sell off state assets. And to balance the budget by basically dollarizing and and so on. Obviously, I'm not very clear on the details. Maybe you have some some thoughts on on that because if Argentina defaulted on the debt because of Millet's dollarization, obviously that would be catastrophic and and intense in the relationship with the IMF. So there there is some truth to that. I mean, he's not an ultra right. He's not far right. He's not an extremist. I think. Current policies are really extremist, but Javier has chosen to ally with the right-wing conservative group. His vice president is a woman who is a nationalist. She is not a libertarian. She is not anti-libertarian, but she has some controversial views. Uh, particularly, they, they very they very pro-drug war. She's very pro-drug war, and. Javier Millet even has some social conservative views, which I understand as a libertarian, that is uh, regarding abortion. But he has very passionate views on on everything. So he, when he expresses about abortion or about sexual education in school at school, um, or compulsory sexual education at school, he he's also as passionate as when he t- talks about the central bank. So people might. Uh, Associate the the ways of his the, that he expresses himself with, I don't know why far right or ultra right, but he has he has made an alliance. He calls himself a paleo libertarian. He he sees himself in the late Rothbard tradition of of right wing populism. Yeah, that's very interesting. So he's he's a social conservative. He's his vice president is uh, pro-drug war. So, yeah, he's kind of a he's not exactly a full on, uh, you know, all all bets are off. You know, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody type of uh, libertarian. He's got that sort of social conservatism, you know, anti-abortion and uh, and the, the drug war policies. 
which you know definitely is is appealing to let's say a a popular conservative ethos, right? Uh, it's a position that's similar. You know, you, we can see that position rising in the United States as well. Um, yeah, very very interesting. Um, do you know what can you tell us about the current state of the dollarization in Argentina? You know, like what the the stories that we get is that. There's like the the blue dollar, and then there's the the black market uh, dollar, and that you know very there's a very active sort of um, exchange economy for dollars in Argentina that, that a lot of places accept dollars as payment. Is that accurate? What can you tell us about that? So yes, uh, first thing I have to say is that even though Millet proposes dollarization, all the Argentines are already dollarized or. Well, not a lot, but some are even Bitcoinized. Bitcoinized. Um, mm -hmm. People saving, when they, they, they are able to save a small amount of pesos, they change it into dollars and they save in, in US physical dollars. They keep it them under the mattress, we say. Um, so virtually, uh, people's savings are already dollarized. Then large commercial transactions like real estate or imported cars, are also made in dollars, although now more and more uh, transactions are, are made in dollars. For example, if you got, need to fix your car, the mechanic would give you a budget in you could, could give you a budget in US dollars in order to avoid all the volatility with the peso right now. Because as you said, there are um, exchange rate controls and capital controls, so it's not it's not legal for almost any individual to access the US dollar market, legal US dollar market, the forex market. So there are different ways of getting, so the, the official exchange rate is now at 350 pesos per dollar, but the different black market exchange rates are around 750 pesos per dollar. So there is a 100% gap between the official exchange rate and the black market exchange rate. Because uh, no one can access except some importers can access the 350 pesos uh, per dollar in order to pay for import. But right. so, so there is a lot of arbitraging opportunities in this context. The importers using that money in order to sell those dollars in another market for a higher price. Now, right. most of the people get their US dollars through three ways. First, in the like the blue dollar we call it which is the black market dollar where you go to a cueva it's a cave in in, in spanish where it's like a, a a small clandestine bank where you can exchange money you can send money abroad uh all of all all outside of the surveillance of the state another way is using the blue chip swap that uh buying a, a bond denominated in argentine pesos and then selling it in the selling it in another broker for US dollars uh, overseas. And the third way is through app fintech. There is a lot of USDT demand here, a lot of USDC demand uh, for people replacing their, their dollar purchases, their physical dollar purchases for USDT purchases. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, the, the USDT adoption rate is something that is not talked about enough. And I would love to see some data on this, but uh, yeah, is that is your 
like in your experience is USDT like what what is the adoption like do people use it just to like hedge the inflation are you people using it actually for payments and what network are they using I'm assuming they're using Tron which is you know where everybody seems to be using it oh David Paul has joined but go ahead yes uh, I don't have numbers with me here but most people use USDT in order to hedge from from inflation uh, they would maybe buy their income, their, their monthly income, they turn it into US dollars and they start selling it as, as, as they need it. Uh, and savings, but I don't see, uh, and long-term savings, but I don't see a lot of, um, maybe some online, some online commerce would accept USDT, but I don't see a lot of transactions in USDT. I'm starting to see USD denominated prices, uh, but the peso is still the, the means of payment for those USD prices. Gotcha. So they probably sort of move it through exchanges and so on. Um, yeah, so all right. Use, uh, they use mostly Tron. They use mostly Tron. Yeah. Right. 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 All right. David Powell has joined. Thank you, David, for joining us. Everybody, please stick around. We also have Body Anarchist, a friend of mine, and uh, he he in particular will be talking about like his. Anarcho, like Millet's anarcho-capitalist positions and what that actually reveals from, let's say, ANCAP insiders like him and I, like Body and I. And so um, that'll be that'll be really interesting. Uh, everybody, please share the show. Please do a quick retweet. Let's get these numbers up. These are rookie numbers. We can get this, pump these numbers up. So please retweet the show and let's uh, spread the word about what's going on in Argentina and try to get this conversation, um, you know, to really take the space that it requires. Because if Argentina gets dollarized and if Millet is really a libertarian and somehow opens the door for Bitcoin legal tender or for Bitcoin to not be taxed uh, as a uh, capital gains uh, and basically opens the door for Bitcoin, that would be uh, huge. Uh, it'll be huge anyway, just with dollarization, geopolitically speaking, but um, it would be really interesting. So yeah, please pump the show and uh, David Well, welcome to the show. How uh, how are you doing today? Hey Juan, doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So you recently made uh, headlines with a um, some commentary on an, on a report by Arc uh, mentioning that Bitcoin adoption was outpacing uh, the adoption rate in El Salvador. Basically, Bit Bitcoin adoption in Argentina is growing faster than it is in El Salvador. Um, tell us a little bit about that report and uh, what are you looking at in this, you know, um, Argentina Bitcoin dollarization uh, story? Yeah, well, I'll start by perhaps clarifying what I saw in the headlines. Uh, and I think perhaps you can make the claim that Argentina is trumping El Salvador in terms of adoption, but in absolute terms. In relative terms, I think the case... Uh, it's the same case all across Latin America, especially uh, in countries uh, like Argentina and El Salvador. And the case is, for the most part, either the nation is dollarized, as in the case of El Salvador, or the nation is uh, has a, a very prevalent black market of USD, where most people are hoarding cash, USD, uh, which is an important distinction to what the 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 general headline narrative took from my article a little bit um what i will say is um the following i think argentina and this comes from a little bit of data i've seen here and there 
and also anecdotal ep uh, evidence. Uh, I I've traveled there a few times. My fiance is Argentinian. So for, uh, the situation is quite different. First, the two countries have very different priorities. El Salvador seem to have crime rate as the, the first national priority um, from, since way before Bukele came into power. Argentina is quite different. Um, for the most part, the crime you see there is pettier crime, you could say. Uh, and it's much more related to the economic and financial situation you see in the country. So for instance, um, the um, tremendous inflation and devaluation and the Argentinian peso has had over the years has completely eroded purchasing power um, and has caused that um, families pretty much cannot get out of Argentina, right? Unless you're pretty wealthy. Um, that has caused, as in a lot of uh, developing nations, um, a major black market that has prevented even the dollar of being fungible in the country. So for instance, you have uh, several denominations of it. Um, you have the official national, uh, which I think today is about 370 pesos per dollar. Then you have the black market dollar, which would be, uh, it's also called the, the dollar blue, which is about seven, I remember, it, it, it's so volatile, 7.30, last time I checked. And then you have, so with, with those two types of dollars, what, what you would do as a tourist uh, visiting the country, you go there, most, most tourists would go there, take $5,000, $10,000 um, in cash. Um, and when they're in the country, um, a lot of them would go to um, uh, an exchange, uh, uh, somewhat illegal or gray market looking exchange and, and get the dollar blue uh, denomination. Within that, not even like different types of denomination are fungible. So for instance, you would get more for your back, for your buck if you're purchasing uh, with, if you're purchasing Argentinian peso for transactions with a $100 bill than a $20 bill, right? You have a better deal for that because counting it and transporting it, it's much easier. It's just less weight on the paper. Um, and you would get oodles, literally oodles of bills and pretty much transact in Argentina throughout your trips. And, you know, $5,000 can last you months there. Um, last year, I went pretty much at the same year pretty much at the same time last year. And pretty much everything has twofold since then. I think uh, what used to be the dollar blue denomination is now the official national denomination for, for USD, the exchange rate, which is just ironical to some extent. And, um, and on top of that, um, you, uh, you, you see a lot of people talking about uh, crypto in general, uh, you have Binance, for instance, has a very, um, uh, it's well positioned brand wise in the country. You, you people know about Binance for the most part. But what I've seen is that the hoarding for the most part is regarding to cash as opposed to stable coins. And then on top of that, I've seen some in, uh, a few 
charts and estimations on the inflows of um, crypto in general to the country. First off, Argentina, last time I checked, this may be outdated, but I think pretty much with Brazil, but Trump's Brazil in terms of uh, being the, the largest builder of startups. It has a lot of talent, uh, financially speaking, and, you know, artistically speaking as well. Uh, it's a tremendously sophisticated country. 70% of, uh, uh, of people there are from Italian descent. So it's still very European. You, you go to Buenos Aires and you get a, a very European feel. You get the sense that it's a somewhat decayed European city for the most part, uh, but it's still vibrant um, for, for, why, for what I saw compared to other parts of Latin America, lower crime. And if there's crime, it's more petty crime given the financial situation there. And, um, and a lot of immigrants as well, Venezuelans and Bolivians uh, especially. Um, so um, what I saw is most, mostly that, uh, given stores cash and paper as opposed to crypto in general, and even within in, uh, crypto terms, um, people would gear more towards stable coins than Bitcoin. I've seen a few uh, data um, sources that confirm that. Uh, and in that sense, yes, in absolute terms, Bitcoin adoption and crypto adoption, meaning especially stable coins, um, is greater in Argentina than El Salvador, but that's because it has a bigger economy and more population, right? So that's in, in general the way I've seen it uh, in the last few years. But with Millet um, coming into the equation, um, things may change. What I would expect to happen is still his intent, his first intent would be to dollarize. So that would pretty much replicate a lot of the circumstances that you would see in, in, in some places like El Salvador. And then perhaps... Um, give tax incentives and, um, and you know, uh, denominate Bitcoin as a legal tender would also incentivize the use of Bitcoin, but as opposed to uh, incentivize its use transactionally, I would expect it to go into more of a store of value mechanism. And what I mean is for most of Latin Americans, uh, especially lower to middle class, um, the way the way you can think about it, a lot of the middle class in America has access to equity curves, right? Because you have your 401k and the like. But in Latin America, for, on average, people are, are, are a lot more financially unsophisticated in that regard. And for the most part, the equity curve um, becomes the USD, right? And it's very different to the way uh, Americans would use it. So for Americans would be, you know, let, let's avoid inflation, right? And let's play more aggressively to over the long term um, have money from re retirement. But in the case of um, Latin America, the, um, the savings time horizons are much shorter. So uh, you cannot have, the, you, you don't have the luxury to amount for a very diversified portfolio where you can take a lot of risks on. So they stick to defensive plays like buying USD um, and, uh, and they forget about playing aggressive moves, right? 
uh, or playing more long-term moves into retirement horizons. So, um, mm, but right. regardless, I think Bitcoin and its peer-to-peer -peer network would be a good optionality for Latin Americans to start developing equity curves on top of USD. And sometimes anecdotally, I've seen that from the, not only from the most uh, entrepreneurial uh, sector of the population, but also like very regular people I met in Argentina, uh, including farmers and, you know, uh, people who work in the fields and stuff like that. They know about Bitcoin, they know about crypto, but for the most part, they play the hype cycles, the bull and bear markets as opposed to see it in, in a, you know, four year, five year, 10, 10 year time horizon at the very least. And obviously younger people play around with it a little bit more. That's more or less the what I've seen uh, in the last few years. Sure. Sure. And yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. It, it goes along with uh, an occur a, a recurring theme in this podcast that uh, competing Bitcoin competing with the dollar is actually the toughest environment for Bitcoin to compete in because of the volatility and the brand, the brand strength of the dollar. But that Bitcoin adoption in countries that are not dollarized is probably a lot easier because it moves faster. It's easier to acquire at some degree. And it, it you know, it, it, it's, it's being compared to a failing currency. Uh, and so the dollarization of Argentina would certainly, you know, be strong competition for Bitcoin. And people that are buying Bitcoin are probably not you know, they're probably already dollarized, you know, but people that are not dollarized are going to be just trying to, you know, save themselves from drowning in, you know, hyperinflation of the Argentinian peso. Um, so so that that's very interesting. Um, can you can you tell us about the national debt of Argentina? Because I, I'm not sure how that will work. Right. Like the the, the national debt of Argentina is, yeah, I suppose, with the IMF. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it's denominated in, but it seems to be very much tied to the inflation. What happens to the national debt if, if Argentina dollarizes and can they avoid default? Well, the, um, going into geopolitics, um, if Millet wins, it gets quite complicated because of that debt, right? Because you have the trade-off of, um, I don't know, I, I, I don't have a, um, a, a position on that, but ultimately Millet is, uh, I, I wanna go into that a little bit because I think it, it has a lot of ramifications on, in terms of the debt, the relationship of Argentina to the USD and, and the way things may play out a little bit. So I don't know if you've talked about uh, Millet uh, a lot in, in the past half an hour. I know you guys have been here for for a little bit, but Millet is in... in yeah, we gave a little bit of a background right. of, of who he is and, and his policies. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Right, so Millet um, in theory is uh, an anarcho-capitalist. And I think he tends to read more on the... You, you know, you, you have to understand that Latin American libertarians are very different from American libertarians. Like, American libertarians, for the most part, adhere to a, very, a, a much more pragmatic and practical way of looking at things. And it also has um, 
more influence from both the right and the left game theory that develops in the two-party system in America. So you would see people talking about, you know, the principles of uh, libertarianism, uh, the non-aggression principle, for instance. Um, but also you see a lot of la uh, libertarian candidates in the U.S. talking about state rights. And that's the way that they suggest decentralizing power. But in Latin America, for the most part, the libertarian ca uh, candidates that you see are, they read it all in books. And th th they're people tired of heavy government intervention, um, communism, playing out communism in several of the countries, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they pretty much become counter um, counterweights to what they have seen for most of their lives. And the way they do it is they arm themselves with a lot of theory from a lot of books, from Hayek to Rothbard, etc. Uh, what I see in Millet is he thought he, he seems to talk a lot about theory um, in, in more the, the vein of the anarcho-capitalist vein. But when you see in, in, in his proposals related to, to what he's going to do when he comes to power, if he comes to power, is more of a minarchist vision. So he talks about um, perhaps uh, getting rid of the public education sector, right? But at the same time, he's going to keep um, foreign relations uh, via, uh, within the government, foreign relations and, uh, and, and domestic relations inside the country, uh, it, it performed by the government. So uh, there's a funny video of him pretty much cutting all the what what, what he understands is the the heads of a hydra, where he pulls out yeah education let's get rid of that, uh, tourism let's get rid of that, and all the government bodies and he's gonna keep about six right, and those six, for the most part align with the monarchist vision the night watchman state of, we have to keep both police national defense the courts. And, uh, you know, in the, place, in, the place of, in the case of some monarchists, we have to keep with that government body that performs diplomacy um, in-house and out-house, right? That seems to me more um, realistically what Millet is. And mm -hmm. from that, you get a lot of geopolitical implications. So one, he, he wants to have a place in the world. It's not going to be a narco-capitalist um, Utopia, for sure. And, uh, you know, first of all, the, the, the change is major. Like, uh, in Argentina, a great deal of the population is subsidized by the government. It's even a, like a... Like there, there's a national attitude towards subsidized people. And to some extent, they're seen as, you know, um, from, from the non-subsidized people, the entrepreneurial class, they're seen as, you know, they're lazier, they need the handoffs. So there's a, a, a class, a severe class divide in the country from the get-go. So it's very different to think that anarcho-capitalism will go into a country just because it's going to be top-down. I mean, in El Salvador, Bitcoin was top-down and adoption still has to be organic. Otherwise, you have some sort of fascism, right? So in, this, in, that, yeah. in that sense, some says, some same sense, sorry, you have Argentina 
Um, with that, in the words, Millet winning the, the primaries and with a very high likelihood of being elected. And that results in the two main issues or, or two main trade-offs uh, I see um, the country branching out of. One is the debt problem, which you mentioned, where, where on the one hand, it's very tough to dollarize when you have that amount of debt. So that's one. And the other one is the BRICS invitation. Um, Argentina is one of the very few countries that got the, VIX, uh, the BRICS invitation. Um, and, I, right. and, and it's a very tough position for Millet. On the one hand, mm-hmm. you have, um, you want to dollarize again, right? That's the other source of conflict uh, for dollarization. Um, you want to dollarize on the one hand, but on the other one, uh, how, how would you protect yourself from a geopolitical uh, and military perspective against any conflict worldwide, right? If you're not aligned with the IMF anymore because you, you defaulted on debt on the one hand, what's left, BRICS, but you want to dollarize, is the dollar still strong enough against um, the BRIC currency? So it's a very trade-off position for, for Malay. And the answer to your question, it becomes, it's all about how much of a, a practical man or a theoretical man he is. If he's a practical man, right. if he's a practical man for the most part, I think the easier position would be, or, or the, 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 less, the, the frictionless position uh, would be um, one of the two that perhaps you default the, I don't know, going into the the, the, the brick side um, as a way to pr- protect yourself uh, macroeconomically and geopolitically. And um, if he's too theoretical, then he will dollarize. And the results of that would be, uh, in my view, perhaps um, uh, uh, similar results to what you see in, in places like uh, Ecuador and El Salvador. Um, Right, where people have um, it's a much stabler economy. Um, it supports the entrepreneurial class, and um, and uh, but also you know um, produces a lot of internal conflicts, especially in a country as large as Argentina. I mean, it's even yeah, it, it feels large even for for El Salvador and and Ecuador, right? Imagine Argentina. And Argentina has a lot of different political um, sources. And, you know, Argentina has been, you know, influenced by a lot of libertarian strains, even fascist strains going back to, to the 20s and the 40s. Um, and, and after that, you know, a, a lot of um, pink wave, um, you know, the new social revolution for the 21st century that came into Latin America and peaked with the Kirchners in, in Argentina um, some years ago. So I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know, I don't want to like interpret that, but mm-hmm. it seems a very difficult uh, situation in, in that sense because the, the only way I see uh, it, your, 
your hyperinflationary situation, you know, as uh, Martin Armstrong claimed that, right? Hyperinflation is more of a political event than an economical event because it means that your people don't trust an iota out of your government, right? That's the problem here. Right. So perhaps it defaults on the debt, but and joins BRICS, with, but it's a very, you know, you forgo G7 and incorporate yourself in, into BRICS, but then have uh, other positions. Perhaps you stick. Yeah. Uh, and wh whatever it is, if you dollarize, you're pretty much yeah. keeping yourself away from the world geopolitically, which is another trade-off that Millet has to make. And you know, Millet and yeah, how how is he going to how is he going to dollarize how is he going to dollarize Argentina and also default on the debt? He he's that's the, he has two big big challenges coming up. But it seems to me like the BRICS question. It's one of the biggest challenges he's going to have to provide clear answers to. He has already been very clear. He said that, I mean, clear enough that it, it, it tells us where he's going or what he's thinking. He said he, as a president, he will not make a deals with communists. And he's, of course, talking about the, China, the communist, Chinese Communist Party and, and obviously, you know, China, the biggest piece of BRICS, right? Um, but that, that the free enterprise, that the private enterprise is free to do business and deals with whoever they want to deal with. So he's saying he's not going to get in the way of private enterprise to do business with China and India, etc. But he's not going to he's basically saying he's going to exit uh, any kind of uh, bilateral deals or agreements with with China. Right. But on the other hand, you know, he, he has to. Um, yeah, he can't. You know, if, if he can't, he has to manage that. He can't. He can't default on it. Otherwise, how is he going to manage that dollarization? He's going to need good relations with the West in order to to dollarize the country, right? Like something we we're talking about with Adam lately, uh, earlier is um, there's a liquidity question around the dollarization. There's not enough dollars to dollarize the country. How do they deal with that? Um, you know, maybe maybe you can tell us a bit, a little bit about the technicals of that if if you're if you're savvy on them, right? Like how how would he dollarize? Well, assuming, um, going back to the theoretical libertarian position, what's the lowest hanging fruit if, if you're a libertarian president uh, dealing uh, a, lot, a lot of it in theories, right? It would be lowest hanging fruit. You remove currency control, first off. For the, on the one hand, much more people than you think in Argentina have dollar under their mattress. That's one in cash. Um, and the inflows into the country until recently, I mean, lately that they just uh, had a new uh, exchange rate, which is MEP, where tourists can come in and as opposed to getting into the, the black market, they can pay with card and they get a much better exchange rate. We're very closer, much closer to the blue exchange rate, the black market one as opposed to the official one. Um, in that sense, that seems to be the lowest hanging fruit. Just open the market to USD, because as of now, there's uh, severe impositions to citizens to save in USD. Um, I think, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the limit is like $200 per month, or I don't remember. Well now they have theoretically yeah but they have imposed a series of restrictions that it's virtually impossible for anyone to access that 
uh, change rate. Yeah, makes sense. Makes absolute sense. Um, and also, uh, what I got like um, so when my mother-in-law came to Mexico, uh, um, we, we visited Mexico last uh, three, four months ago. She was paying with her card and get, was getting taxed like fifty percent out of every transaction and stuff like that. So, yeah, Argentinians have, have a very hard deal either with some tax, um, taxation, or just like straight up currency controls, where they're like severely prevented from acquiring USD. So lowest hanging fruit, very simple, remove all that completely. Right. And on top of that, make it a legal tender and make every merchant, merchant accepted because that's another issue, right? That's why most of the tourists coming into a country, for instance, have to trade into uh, oodles of Argentinian peso as opposed to just paying with dollar bills or whatever. That's another issue. So there, there seem to be very simple solutions on how to do that. And perhaps the, the, the libertarian way would be the, 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 the least offensive um, to do so. And um, that, that seems to be the, yeah, the, 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 the clearest and the, the path with the less resistance, right? Right. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin for a moment. What, um, what have you guys seen from Malay in regards to Bitcoin? I've only been able to find like one clip and a couple of tweets where he says that Bitcoin is, is private money. It's the, the private industry's response to uh, the, the Federal Reserve fiat scam. Um, but is there like a policy that he has expressed where he would be like, well, you know what, we'll make the dollar a legal tender and we will, I don't know, put here's Bitcoin and so, you know, gold as options for trade as well. Like, because the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to Bitcoin adoption as a currency is the capital gains or potential taxes on, on trade of Bitcoin, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're in theory have to pay, 10 to 15% of every Bitcoin transaction um, because they're not considered legal tender or currency, that's a, uh, that's a non, that's a showstopper, right? Uh, any, you know, what, what are, what are you guys, what do you, how have you guys seen on that? Um, go ahead, Adam. And then David, uh, if you have any thoughts. So no Bitcoin, it hasn't been a part of the campaign. Uh, I think that Javier Millet has a deep understanding in the tradition of Austrian economics uh, about money, the origins of money, central banks, and and, and all the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin uh, um, speech about about money, the Bitcoin, the Bitcoiner view. But I don't think that he has a deep knowledge about Bitcoin on how it works, how resilient. It decentralization it is. So he, he hasn't gone through the rabbit hole and he regards Bitcoin as an a curious a curious invention by the private sector, as he said. And he, his theory is that Bitcoin might has low chances of succeeding because there is a high chance that governments will be able to control and ban Bitcoin transactions. So he thinks that Bitcoin needs to overcome that in order to in order to to succeed. 
Um, I don't see Bitcoin becoming legal tender either, but I think that Bitcoin could be part of, um, of, of I mean, uh, Millet said that he, he opted for dollarization because Argentines have already chosen the US dollar as their savings currency. There is between 200 and 400 billion dollars physical dollars or or not, not only physical dollars, but assets in US dollars by Argentines held abroad or out of the financial system. So Argentines have already chosen the US dollar, but he would allow uh, currency competition. So I don't think he would impose any special restriction on the use of any other currencies if he goes on with his dollarization plan. So I think it would be good. Bitcoin would be in a good position if it's in equal terms with any other uh, fiat currency issued by any other country. So yes, he's probably Bitcoin friendly. I call him. Right. Yeah, and that's uh, his position on Bitcoin and crypto. And his let's say noob but curious uh, approach to it is something that's <laughs> interesting, and we'll, we're going to get into it because there's a whole rabbit hole of controversies there. But uh, uh, David, do you have any any thoughts on the on the Bitcoin? You know, the legal uh, adoption of Bitcoin in Argentina. Um. I think, again, the, the, the lowest hanging fruit would be, even from a libertarian and a capitalist position, would be remove controls and, and, and taxation to incentivize its use and building businesses around uh, its use. Uh, especially if Millet sees Bitcoin as a curiosity, I think that, that, that would be the most e efficient mechanism to do it. If you uh, apply legal, legal tender to it, uh, I think something, I don't know, uh, on the one hand you have, I think that the, the way people works, especially in terms of mass adoption, you would see something very similar to El Salvador, where most of the transaction take place um, in tourist destinations. Well, um, it's only El Sonte where most of the people in El Salvador use it right now. And on top of that, perhaps... Um, you know, mostly tourist uh, use around the country. So that's one layer. On top of that, you could have um, a few people who decide to use it as an equity curve, as I've mentioned. Uh, I think uh, Argentinians are, let's say, a high, uh, they have a high degree of sophistication in terms of uh, financial, uh, the financial realm um, than the rest of Latin America. That's one of the reasons you see a lot of fintechs coming out of there. Um, but beyond that, I also think that adoption in the country, even if it's a legal tender, will correlate for the most part with the price of Bitcoin, right? And it's bull and bear cycles over the years, as we've seen uh, for over a decade now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to to use Bitcoin as currency versus the dollar when Bitcoin is, you know, falling versus the dollar. Uh, my thesis is that, you know, next bull market, uh, we will see the adoption grow because people are going to get that FOMO and they'll start asking it and accepting it and promoting it again. Um, what is, um, I want to ask you about BRICS um, before you go. I want to ask you about you know, where you see BRICS going. But before we jump to that, do you have any insight into, let's say, I don't know, on-chain data or on-chain adoption of stable coins? 
And uh, in Argentina, like, do are, is there has there been any studies or do we have any empirical data on Bitcoin adoption and stablecoin adoption in Argentina? And and how is it even used there? I actually uh, want to hold off on that. Um, um, for the most part, in in that, in on, in terms of on chain data, I I would look more to uh, towards chain analysis. I think they have perhaps the best geographical. Um, studies on Bitcoins coming back and forth from one place of the world to the other. Um, I don't have the numbers off my head, uh, but I, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the report, um, I think end of year or so, um, to explore that a little bit. Um, don't have the numbers off my head, but to my understanding, okay. last time I checked, Stable coins supersede Bitcoin in on-chain terms, in terms of inflows into the country. And this happens for pretty much every Latin American country. And this, this comes from um, yeah. a, a few data points that I've seen um, on, um, from different um, data providers and also anecdotally. Like if, if, right. if there's a demand for a dollar over Bitcoin, in paper terms, the, the, there should always be like a, a, an over demand for for a synthetic version as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just to be clear too about the reporting on on adoption in Argentina versus El Salvador, the, it, in total terms, Argentina has more adoption, more Bitcoin adoption than El Salvador. But of course, it's a, the country is ten times bigger than El Salvador. Uh, it, do you have an insight on a per capita basis what that adoption is like? No, at the moment, no. That's why I wanted to clarify my the headlines a little bit. In absolute terms, uh, yes, of course, there's more adoption. Uh, but in relative terms, um, uh, th there's no evidence to suggest any major disparity at the moment, to my right. to my knowledge. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it would be great to have more data. We'll definitely I'll keep an eye on that story for yeah. that chain analysis yeah. report or whatever that's coming up. Yeah, you mm -hmm. should keep an eye on chain analysis reports. They have their most robust stuff on that. And regardless, I think mm. we're coming into next year, perhaps, uh, that's a good venue of research, um, even, mm -hmm. even for ARC. So um, mm -hmm. something to keep in mind, for sure. Fascinating. Thank you, David. Uh, before you go, tell us, um, how do you see... Bricks. Uh, obviously, again, this is a huge story that they, let's say, pre-approved Argentina as part of Bricks. Obviously, it, that's still in question with this election. Uh, Bricks seems to be positioning to to let's say hedge against dollar trade. They're trying to open bilateral trade agreements and you know trying to trade in each other's currencies. Uh, there's rumors that they, they're trying. They want to start some sort of like I don't know the Bricks equivalent of the euro. But that doesn't seem likely or particularly uh, a good idea. Um, what are you seeing on the like? What is the BRICS actually trying to do, and can they actually achieve anything? Because what I, what I've been listening hearing is that the BRICS don't actually have a very good track record of achieving anything in coordination. Even the past twenty years, they haven't really achieved much. It's mostly just kind of like a conference. So, like, what? How do you see BRICS today? Well, um, there's weakness in China to start it off, uh, for sure. 
Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of uh, demographic issues in the country. And we believe that some of those issues are starting to um, well up into the, the financial system. Um, there are some uh, arguments to be made that, you know, India surpassed China in terms of the, the largest population in the world, uh, not years ago, but perhaps a decade ago. Um, I, uh, perhaps the, the demographic issues of China are much of a leading indicator, more of a leading indicator than people think. Um, that's one aspect of BRICS. In terms of forming a euro-like currency or um, series of trade agreements, if it was hard for Europe, I, I cannot imagine how hard it could be for, for the BRICS nations. Um, they have much more different cultures, you know, between cultures than the European cultures were. Um, they have, in geographical, they're much more spread out geographically, uh, geopolitically, socioeconomically, and culturally. Um, so in term, if you ask me about BRICS, I, I, I think it's a, a very interesting, but I, I wouldn't be very, I don't think it, it will be severely su successful, especially over the long term. What it pertains to Argentina, <clears throat> I mean, most likely if Millet wins, perhaps he uh, declines the invitation. If the status quo persists and he's defeated uh, in the elections, I think there's a serious possibility of Argentina um, joining BRICS. Um, in terms of the currency, you go back uh, to the Milton Friedman position, right? Uh, where he was criticizing the euro even before it was formed and pretty much saying that uh, Benelux region and France currency would make much more sense to me in terms of just language and culture and, and, and the way their financial systems are um, set up. But the, the amount of variables in, in that would be input into a system comprising those five nations and a few others perhaps in so many terms, it's very hard to predict. It would be very chaotic, for sure, very volatile. Now, when it pertains of uh, on bilateral agreements that you were mentioning, uh, I mean, you see evidence of perhaps the success or the failure of those uh, bilateral agreements, even in Argentina. A lot of people, when you go to Buenos Aires, a lot, I don't know if the majority, but a lot of convenience stores are owned by Chinese. And so th there's always been even between China and Argentina. I mean, China has historically been very interested in Latin America in general and has, has had different strategies and, and, and incentives to, make, uh, to deploy their population into um, countries like Mexico, Argentina, um, and the like. But I don't see, um, let's say, um, a very conse consequential uh, economical partnership out of that. For the most part, you see uh, a, uh, some sort of diasporas of Chinese going into these countries and staying there and building families, as opposed to 
major Trans-Pacific um, trade um, agreements and, and, and exchange uh, into the very long term. So I think there's precedent for that, especially with, with China. And uh, so far, I haven't seen a lot of impact, economically speaking. Yeah. The final question on that, do you, do you think the BRICS would be okay with a dollarized Argentina being part of their, part of their union? Um, I believe not. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. No, it's, I mean, yeah, so that... it's, it's kind of the main thesis of, of BRICS, right? And there's, uh, right. And the, and, and that goes more and it has less to do with economics and more to do with geopolitics. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so there's a big, big decision coming up for Argentina. And uh, man, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, thank you, David. I don't know if uh, you're coming up on that hard deadline. Uh, so uh, thank you, nevertheless, for joining. Stay as long as you can and you want. And um, I want to I want to pivot into this question of of Malay as as a libertarian economist. Um, you know, I've been a libertarian for over 10 years now. Jesus, I'm coming in on 15 years now. And what I've seen is the libertarians actually, there's a, kind of like an, a, a monetary agnosticism in their values. They don't, they're not necessarily maximalists. Most Bitcoiners are libertarian, but most libertarians are not necessarily Bitcoin maximalists. In fact, I've seen most of my anarcho-capitalist heroes uh, lose their brands and reputations to, frankly, to shit coins. And uh, Millet has a sordid story with, with the cryptos, right? He's been involved in at least one very obvious Ponzi scheme where they paid him to promote it. Uh, the people behind it were involved in other, other weird, sketchy crypto scams. Uh, he he launched some sort of like NFT gaming project where he presented himself as like the chief economist of this environment. And then the, the main currency of this environment just kind of devalued faster than the Argentinian peso. Um, it basically is trading at near zero at this point. So uh, he doesn't seem to have particularly good judgment on that front and seems to be vulnerable to the crypto scams that I have you know, proliferated among libertarians and, and ANCAP uh, influencers. Um, so that's one thing that worries me. Um, Adam, I know this is a topic that you had some thoughts on. Uh, how do you see, how do you see Millet in this regard? Is there a possibility for us to orange pill him and show him, show him the way away from, you know, random crypto scams or is going to be a, a scenario like like that South African country that, you know, opened up Bitcoin and then six months later they rolled it back because all the crypto scammers came in and, you know, ruined the, ruined the, the game. No, definitely. I, you know, you reminded me of some things I, I didn't remember about Millet, particularly the NFT stuff. So, but definitely he can be orange peel. I think that uh, an hour or two with Saifedean, it would be enough for him to become an a Bitcoin maxi, a toxic Bitcoin maxi. Um, yeah, I think definitely there is a chance, but at the moment, in a country where there is uh, like over fifty percent of poverty, I think that it would it would be it would we see something like disconnected from 
day-to-day uh, -day reality in this context, but I think like in, in a couple of years, he could be very open to, to, to you know, uh, getting more deep into, into Bitcoin. And regarding the, uh, regarding the, the, the um, these this, um, very unfortunate events that Millet uh, took part in, this one of these was in December 2021, where he were prom was promoting a new way of planning your retirement and uh, saving money, saving saving your money at a fixed uh, rate of returns. So it was obviously a Ponzi. There was even some uh, typos and orthography mistake errors in 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 their website. So it was evident. But he he made he uploaded some uh, Instagram story. And he never deleted it, so he didn't really care about it and what what people said about it. So and and this and this camp fell, I think, like a month ago. So it lasted for uh, well over a year and a half, I think. And then then you reminded me of these NFTs that he was promoting back at the at the peak of the bull of the crypto bull market. So yes, this is that that was very unfortunate. But you know, I have decided uh, in my view and 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 speaking uh from this perspective of an argentine i could accept those errors uh in exchange of changing uh the whole economic uh, matrix of argentina and providing people a, 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 a better better uh life conditions life quality you know yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the area where I see I see Millet as much more of a pragmatist than he presents himself. Like he he seems to come off as like let's say a uh, a very yeah I want to say uh, maybe principled or like very hardline libertarian. Or but that's compared to uh, to his opposition. But but it seems to me like he's very pragmatic when it comes to business. Right? He's taking this sort of sketchy deals. Um, and he, like a lot of the policies that I see are actually wise in their pragmatism, right? Like he's, he's, uh, for example, the education reform, he's, 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 uh, promoting a voucher system, which seems to be a very popular form of education reform in the U S as well. And the idea would be kind of like, you still retain the public education system, but you give, you introduce the voucher system, which introduces competition among schools. Uh, so that's a very pragmatic approach. Um, and obviously his, uh, his use of the dollar, the popularity of the dollar in Argentina as a, as a, as an economic path is very pragmatic. Uh, so I, I, but he, you know, he still has that hard line on the bricks. I, I expect that if he does join, he's going to exit the bricks if he really, cause it would destroy his brand, right? Like his whole brand is anti-communist. So like he, you can't, you can't partner up with the bricks, uh, and maintain, you know, that, 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 that perception, right? Um, yeah, very interesting. Uh, body, do you have any thoughts on this, on this dimension of, of Millet, right? As a sort of, you know, noob crypto anarchist of sorts. Yeah, I think, um, I think that the thought in the anarcho-capitalist community kind of varies between saying, don't participate in the system whatsoever. You have to build agorism, voluntarism through, um, different means, right? Through means that are outside of the state. And then there's kind of, I think it's a bit more minority, at least in the anarchy circles that um, you and I have both hung out in. It, it's, it's, there are some people that think, well, okay, you know, let's go get into government. Let's start dismantling stuff. 
Um, I think the places where anarchy thought is united or ANCAP thought is united is that politics is basically downstream of culture. And so these changes happening in culture in Argentina are largely the effect of um, sort of people being forced into black markets uh, and into gray markets for their currency. Like people have had to become pragmatically libertarian to some degree um, just to survive because of the hyperinflation. So in a lot of ways, I, I think it's kind of, um, I mean, obviously it's a good thing, but Argentina might present a very interesting case to sort of like this unification where it's like it's already ripe with gray markets and black markets that have developed out of necessity. And then you have a political leader coming in here that's about to dismantle all of this big government stuff. And as David noted, it's it's a little bit closer to uh, to minarchism than it really is, you know, to, to being pure anarcho-capitalism. But um, as you noted, like there has to be some level of pragmatism. Like if you're going to go into the government and dismantle a whole bunch of stuff, try and stabilize the country and then put yourself on a path to actual true anarchy. Um, there's like there's certain steps that you would have to take. And, um, you know, watching this play out, like I would love to see it play out in that direction where the government becomes like true minarchist or to the point of not existing. Um, and that even like might influence my own philosophy, because I'm I'm more in the camp that says, hey, we got to you know, we really need to develop the institution. Sorry, not the institutions. We need to develop the alternative pathways such as agorism um, to develop our own circular economies and just route around this government tyranny. Um, but at some point you have to imagine like, like, let's just imagine hypothetically it happens in the United States. Um, we would have to imagine like, okay, let's suppose we do develop these alternative systems and the economy is equally as much gray as it is, you know, above board. At some point you kind of need to get in there and officially dismantle, or you might, there might be the case to be made that you, you might need to get into the government and officially dismantle some of the more insane aspects of it. So um, I think that'll be really cool to watch it play out. So I, I really do kind of hope to see the guy win. And, um, you know, another thing that ANCAPs tend to believe is that politics is especially useful as a social platform, as an educational platform, even if it's not useful as a, um, you know, as an actual agent of change, because the holy government uh, prescribed that we shall change. And, you know, the government said you will be free now. We gave you your freedoms. Um, most ANCAPs would say that the government, even if it's not useful for that, is also useful for education. Um, you know, you think Ron Paul, his exit speech from the Congress, Ron Paul said, yeah, I didn't really accomplish much legislatively, but my biggest accomplishment was the education and the waking up of a lot of people that are ready for freedom, that are ready for liberty. Um, maybe the last thing I'll say is that um, I, I don't think Malay is not going to be down with BRICS. He's not even down with Mercosur, which is like um, it's kind of like the NAFTA of South America where there, it's like a bunch of trade agreements. Um, he says, hey, you know, Mercosur is, is basically a way for rich people to keep their position on top and to suppress the free trade of the common man. Um, so he's not even interested in in uh, dealing with um, with Brazil necessarily on that level. So it's it's difficult to believe that he would he would actually ever go towards BRICS. Like you said, it's it would just be too inconsistent. Um, and, oh, you know, one last thing. You guys were talking about the debt. Um, so Malay actually believes that the debt will increase in value. And I think his plan and, you know, I'm kind of I know of Malay. I'm not like really deeply researched on him. But the last video I watched on him, he talked about you basically convert the uh, the national debt from pesos into dollars. You denominate it in dollars. And um, this has happened before. Like there's a handful of countries that have uh, dollarized and gotten rid of their debt by exchanging it into U.S. denominated debt. Um, and then I think he talks about interest rates and stuff like that. It, it seems like he's got some kind of comprehensive plan. He talks, you know, he talks like he knows what he's talking about. So um, I think it'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah. That all, that all sounds, sounds very reasonable to me. I think 
Anyway, it's going to be great to watch. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Um, all right. Looks like David has left the show. Thank you, David, for joining us. Um, Adam, um, you don't have to answer this question, but I have to ask it. Are you going to vote for Millet in this election? Yes. After, I think it's about eight years, I voted again. Uh, the last primary, I voted for Millet. But I changed my mind the last two weeks before election because when he announced the future, the potential secretary of education, which will no longer be a, a ministry, but now a secretary, uh, with the guy that has um, written about voucher, uh, school, school, uh, school voucher programs uh, for 20 or 30 years, um, was going to be his secretary of education. And, and he was my professor at, at the university and um, he's like a really, he's Martin, Martin Krauss is his name. He's a really uh, well-known Austrian economist, well-known among libertarians here in Argentina. And I said, there is no way I could no vote someone that is including this kind of people into his team. And that may change my mind in uh, accepting that a candidate doesn't have to be 100% uh, aligned with your thoughts, that you can disagree with a candidate, and as well differentiating, uh, making a difference between the candidate and its followers. Because if you read its followers, they are not, they're, 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 they're most um, enthusiastic followers on Twitter, on social media in general, uh, they are not very, very libertarian. They are more uh, right-wingers, uh, Trump lovers type. So when I learned to make a difference between the guys that support him and that if there is an alliance with right-wing, and but he's taking libertarian ideas, I, I need to accept that and, and, and vote for him and support him. And and I will I will tra be trying to, to, to work working for him the election day, probably. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, my my biggest concern, given let's say my insider perspective on the ANCAP world, is that he's going to suffer, or he could suffer the same fate that Trump suffered when he entered into the Washington. Was that you know he came in with a lot of ideas, with a lot of policy plans, but was had a hard time sourcing the right kind of talent, and the fact that he has been bamboozled by all these crypto scams so far or has sort of cooperated with them, tells me that there's, it worries me a little bit about his judgment of character. Uh, you're reassuring me with this choice on education. I agree that that's a fantastic policy uh, plan. I think that uh, school choice is the kind of a fundamental aspect of, of you know, liberal societies, right? Like you should be able to choose who, where you study, right? And so, and, and, and uh, even if it's publicly funded education, um, so maybe maybe he has better judgment on the on the political front than he does on the crypto front, which is understandable. Crypto's a mess. Uh, you know, a lot of confusing messaging, a lot of like shiny bells and whistles. So you know, I want to give him a pass on that, but it's uh, it's something to keep an eye on. That I, I don't think that, for example, school, school vouchers will be implemented in this first presidential period. He has already said this. Um, uh, like if you see the state of school of, of public schooling right now, or if you say the public healthcare system, you would realize that there is no way that it could be implemented um, in the next two or three years. But I think that Javier is uh, playing a big role in moving the Overton window 
expressing these ideas, uh, these ideals he has as ideal situations for the education educational system, for the healthcare system, with uh, with, with vouchers as well. Um, so, and, and and then his team and the more technical people, the more, the technocrats, not, not the technocrats, but the the people that 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 were in charge of studying in deep these issues, they proposed a path to take in order to achieve the ideal situation of complete a free school choice, for example. Right. Yeah, and he's got a bunch of other policies that are really attractive to me as a as a libertarian like uh deregulation of of gun ownership and uh, among civilians which should help deal with the crime situation uh body i just thought that um i might allay you some of your concerns about Millet's shitcoinery um it seems like one of the more consistent positions i've seen from him is that he wants currency competition and um and that the dollar is kind of a means to that end so for example part of his plan is in the first year um it's going to be completely optional whether you want to use the dollar or whether you want to use the peso. He says he's not going to stop anyone from using anything he wants. And um, it seems like his cryptocurrency proclivities are similar to that. Um, one thing that I've noticed in the libertarian and ANCAP community is that kind of people kind of have a sense that they know this stuff is really technical. They know they don't know code. They don't know game theory. You know, I mean, this is like the intersection of game theory and code networking and economics. So one thing that I think one reason you see a lot of shit coinery, especially from people just getting into crypto, is that they know that they don't know and they're they're kind of keeping their mind open to what the options could be because there is a pretty large body of division across crypto about, you know, what's good and what's not good. So anyways, um, I just thought it might, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's going to like do anything that will be contradictory to Bitcoin. I think if anything, he'll give it the opportunity um, to to use free market mechanisms to be to to get adoption um, if that's what the population chooses. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I think that's fair. I think he's he might. He, yeah, I think that that's fair. If he opened the door and let Bitcoin compete in, in on 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 fair ground against the dollar and other alternatives, that would certainly be, I think, a good thing um, in general. Um, I think it's a good opportunity for Bitcoin to show that, you know, to show that it can win when it's on an equal footing with an equal opportunity. It's a good opportunity for Bitcoin to show that it can win. Yeah, definitely. And they have a lot of fintech in the industry already, so they could probably hit the ground running. Go ahead, El Sultan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Juan. Um, First of all, happy to see a good fellow Bitcoiner from Argentina here, Adam Dub, um, up, up here. Met him uh, back last year at LibitConf in Argentina and had the opportunity to see it firsthand uh, exactly what Doc is mentioning. So I had to go to a, what they call a cueva, a cave, which is essentially this like informal money transmitters, as they can be sometimes called by like the World Bank, uh, which is the same thing that I lived in Venezuela for the past, you know, 27 years of my life. So, you know, this like informal operations, some people call them OTC desks or family desks or whatever. And so they charge a fee for getting you, you know, an international wire or cash advances in exchange for the local currency. Um, back in Venezuela today in 2013, um, all of them, when, when stable coins were not being used, like USDT predominantly today, um, what we use was basically local bitcoins, and so like peer-to-peer exchanges. Um, and so it, it's funny because back then, people, at least in Venezuela, and this is basically what I want to share, and the, the, the similarities of what is happening in Argentina 
today versus you know a decade a decade ago and five years ago in Venezuela. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that, that's that's a really interesting dynamic because it's it's right. actually there's definitely some parallels between Venezuela and, and Argentina from the adoption side of things. Yeah. So like people would see. Yeah, people would see Bitcoin as a freer way, like freer markets, uh, you know, compared to the country currency exchange rates uh, that the government had in place back then in the country. And so you would just off ramp out of you would on ramp into Bitcoin and then off ramp into Bitcoin immediately into like a Panamanian bank account or a, you know, U.S. bank account, basically. Um, but like that, I I. Today, if you look at Venezuela after, you know, going through hyperinflation for more than four years and potentially even going back to hyperinflation after a year of pausing it, we're looking at a 90% plus dollarized economy, but it is fully informal in the sense that it is mainly carried, transactions are mainly carried in cash when you go to like, you know, uh, merchants basically. And the way this is being measured, which is actually very tricky and difficult, the, the most trusted source that you would find out there is coming Ecoanalytica. Ecoanalytica is a group funded in part by the IMF. And so what they do is they, they help Ecoanalytica conduct like polls throughout 2200 or almost Sometimes like they go up to a thousand merchants across the country in different cities and they ask them, what are the payment methods that you are using? Um, what is the most predominant one, etc." The latest report that they showed showed that, again, 90% plus is dollars in cash. 10%, the 10% that is left is a combination of cryptocurrency, predominantly stable coins, um, Colombian pesos and then the Bolivar or other like fintech payment methods like uh, US fintech payment methods like it could be PayPal or you know Zelle so that's what I wanted to expand on like if you ask me I saw I saw the Venezuelan uh, socialist government throughout a decade try to do a thousand different things to avoid to avoid dollarizing the economy and ultimately after after sanctions took place in 2017 even with the plans of trying to issue a you know as they called it a sovereign cryptocurrency backed by oil and petrol yada 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 bs they were forced to go down the road of just pouring dollars in cash inside the economy and so today, what you see in Venezuela is like over $4 billion in cash that came through, you know, direct financing from the government. And then also, you know, people just living abroad of the country, traveling back to the country and just taking money with them to give it to the families. So if you ask me, I see, I see Lay and I see his proposal of like the dollarization and I, I'm an advocate of it, especially because, you know, you could have a... Again, going to the Venezuelan side of things, just because that's that would be my subject matter expertise, is you economy you can transact in dollars that has like softened a bit all of the friction and you know the issues related to having a currency that is hyperinflating. 
Yeah, that, no, that's a really fantastic insight. So despite Venezuela's best effort, the Venezuelan government's best efforts, they failed to keep the country from dollarizing to the point where it's basically almost entirely dollarized at this point. And this is what I hear from Venezuelans on the ground. I, I was just at a crypto conference in Bogota, and there's a lot of Venezuelans there, and that's what they were saying, that the, the country is basically dollarized. And so Millet is basically standing on, he's surfing this wave of, better money taking over the country and and the it, this this proves the economic thesis that that better good money drives out bad money and um you know that should give us hope because at some point dollar will start to decay and and fail and like for those that are insiders into american politics like american politics right now is a fucking clown show it's a complete circus and so the, the there's you know, if there if, if the U.S. dollar has twenty to thirty more years of dominance, uh, it pro it would be amazing if it has a lot more than that. We'll see. Maybe they can you know turn the ship around. But uh, you know, Bitcoin you know Bitcoin could be positioned to 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 open that up as it you know improves the link and 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 improves its brand awareness and so on. I mean, these monetary transitions are not something that happens overnight. They take generations. They take it. They often take like thirty to forty years anyway. So uh, we're still in the early stage, but uh, wow, what a what an insight! Um, it seems like the the dollar is uh, very well positioned here. It would be interesting to see um, the American establishment do something about it, because as far as I can tell, Millet is just uh, kind of yellowing it. And uh, but I do wonder who's backing him. It's it's you know I would be naive to think that he doesn't have you know some solid connections. Um, with uh, North America, because you know we saw it in the Venezuelan uh, attempt at at at, at uh, running a new president uh, a couple of years ago during Trump, maybe five years ago, four years ago now, and that was very explicitly backed by the U.S. Right? So, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's going to be really interesting. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. That was an awesome conversation. I learned a lot. I think we really digested the biggest talking points and storylines and aspects of Mr. Javier Millet. We will be having more conversations about him going forward because it's going to be fascinating and it's going to be wild the next two months in Argentina. So I am looking forward to that. If you enjoy the show, make sure you share it and let the world know about it. I think this is an important conversation in particular because it's going to be um, a very confusing story for the rest of the world to understand, uh, especially with the media uproar that will follow if Mr. Javier Millet actually becomes president of Argentina, starts trying to dollarize it, and actually manages to get rid of the central bank, which he's saying he's going to do. So that's going to be wild. Uh, and these kind of conversations will help people understand the nature of the beast. So, yeah, thank you for listening. You can get everything, all these podcasts and uh, other conversations of this quality and even better at juangal.com and check out bitcoinnews.com for all things Bitcoin news. Anyway, see you in the next one.